Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In 2022, an estimated 100 million people were displaced, and more than 40 million of those were children. Many of these children were displaced for at least five years, often much longer, and most are hosted in low- and middle-income countries where social protection systems are often very limited. In today's episode, we'll look at how some countries are taking steps towards extending social protection to displaced children and their families, while slowly building systems for host populations as well. And stay tuned right to the end of today's episode because we're featuring a special bonus interview about how cash and voucher assistance is being used in the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza. With me today, I have Christy Lowe, who is a research associate at ODI, where she specialises in social protection, focused on marginalised communities and crisis-affected populations, and Nupur Kukreti, who is a policy specialist at UNICEF leading on social protection in humanitarian and fragile contexts. Welcome, Christy and Nupur. Thank you. Thanks very much. Christy, can I start with you? How many children are displaced globally? Where are they displaced from? Where are they now? And how are they living? Well, it is, of course, very difficult to get precise measures of this. But if we're looking at the kind of the best estimates we have available globally, we think around 43.3 million children or young people under the age of 18 years were displaced as a consequence of conflict and violence at the end of last year. So that's obviously a really huge number. And in fact, that number has doubled in the last decade, uh, which shows the, the really worrying trend that we're facing. And that doesn't even include actually those figures, the millions of people who had been displaced internally as a consequence of disasters or natural hazards. Uh, which we think is around maybe 3.5 or so million. So really big numbers that we're dealing with. Of the overall figures, though, I think it's worth noting that the majority of displaced children and young people are actually displaced internally within their own country. So maybe around 60% are the estimates for that. Uh, And when we're thinking about where these displaced children and young people are found for uh, IDPs, internally displaced people, the data are a little bit patchy, but um, the largest populations are found in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen. And if we look at uh, children who have been displaced across borders, so refugees or asylum seekers, uh, the majority actually come from just a handful of countries. So there it would be Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, of course. Well, Ukraine, in fact, also has large IDP populations, but the numbers are are growing pretty um, quickly there and weren't recorded in the historic data. And Venezuela as well is another big country where we've been seeing many displaced children and families coming from. Around three quarters of refugees globally are hosted in low and middle income countries, especially in Africa and Asia. And that is also true then for for refugee children as well. So the largest populations in terms of where they're hosted are found in Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, Uganda and Colombia are the the kind of the leading leading host countries there. And one thing I, I also would like to note here is what you ask kind of how they're living. And I think Another important trend is how protracted displacement has become. So according to UNICEF, 
most children who are displaced today will spend their entire childhoods in in displacement. That's really something to take into account when we think about how this affects children and young people specifically. Nupur, can you tell me a little bit about the particular risks that displaced children face and what that means for their long-term development, especially as Christy has said, if they're spending most of their childhood in these situations? Thanks, Joe. Um, for children, displacement results in a loss of support networks, increased exposure to economic and social risks, and heightened vulnerability to violence, abuse, and exploitation. In general, I would say children are twice as likely as adults to live in extreme poverty. And when this is combined with displacement, the picture is extremely grim. Around 63% of refugee children go to primary school compared to 91% of children globally. Often displaced children are pushed into child labor to augment household incomes. Then, especially when we talk about girls, so refugee girls are half as likely to enroll in secondary school as compared to boys. And we all know that this is a risk that girls face in general, but particularly in a displacement setting of early marriage. Then there are studies that point towards higher stunting and obesity rates among migrant children as compared to host communities. And also globally, 35% of all identified victims of trafficking are children and um, displaced children in particular are at a higher risk because of the you know combined vulnerabilities that they face so children on the move lose out on critical human development investments so christy we've talked about those vulnerabilities displaced children often have limited access to services and social protections that might help to mitigate some of those vulnerabilities what are some of the key barriers that lead to the exclusion of children who are being hosted in other communities? Yeah, I think it's helpful to kind of divide up these barriers between kind of the legal and policy barriers on the one hand, and then the barriers that kind of exist in practice and in how things translate in reality. So on that first component, we know that in many countries, because of being non-citizens, Refugee children may, by law, not be allowed to access certain types of uh, programs, or it may be that their parents, um, the parents of refugee children, are legally prohibited from uh, working. And that would um, then, by extension, prohibit them from accessing social insurance schemes and social security schemes. Sometimes it's not in the laws, but in the kind of policies that accompany those laws. So on that practical flip side, then why, even if they're they're eligible uh, on paper, might uh, refugee and IDP children not access any social protection in practice? Well, this can be Again, a whole host of reasons, but in relation to social insurance, even if parents have the right to work, actually finding formal employment in many of the countries and settings where refugees and IDPs live is very challenging because it's largely informal economies operating in those settings. On the social assistance side, there are also a number of practical barriers. So, um, you know, one of them could be documentation. So, for example, if uh, if a national ID card is required just, you know, to fill in the application form, then um, a refugee likely will not have access to that. Uh, in terms of geographic areas where refugees and IDPs reside, often those areas are not very well served by uh, social protection systems. So it may be hard for them to actually access 
say, the social protection offices, the social welfare offices to apply. But it also might be that the programs, there are very limited provision and the programs don't actually cover those areas. Uh, they may not be able to travel very freely. It's freedom of movement, uh, restricting their access if they're camp based um, displaced families. Uh, or it could be that Actually, it's the opposite. It's a digital barrier. So maybe they don't actually have to travel anywhere to apply, but they just need to do an online application. And that can be a huge challenge if you're um, a newly arrived refugee family that doesn't actually have uh, good access to internet and electricity and mobile devices um, required to apply for a scheme. You may not also be aware of schemes. I know I've mentioned quite a, a lot of barriers already, but just to, to bring one more in. Um, also, we can't we really can't um, discount the, the kind of social uh, dimensions to this and the fact that in a lot of countries there can be quite significant xenophobia or even for internally displaced people, there can be a lot of prejudice um, and discrimination that can mean that even in the cases where people are presenting themselves to request support, whether or not they actually get prioritized and and um, and supported or or kind of served in those settings, uh, it can be really variable as well. Uh, not to mention the fact that in some cases, especially in conflict settings, uh, displaced families themselves might be quite hesitant to present themselves to the state and actually request assistance if, for example, they've recently been persecuted by that same government. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. With all of that in mind, we're going to have a look at some of the ways that some countries are working to address these gaps and extend coverage of services and social protection to displaced people. Nupur, you you talked us through the many vulnerabilities that children face earlier. What are some examples of programs or schemes that try to take an integrated approach to addressing that constellation of issues and supporting children while they're on the move. Last week, I was in Jordan and had the opportunity to visit uh, what is called as the Makani program. In Arabic, this means my space. This program aims to promote the well-being of the most vulnerable children and youth and to help them to achieve their true potential. This program was originally founded by UNICEF, but now... It is grounded in a strategic partnership among local stakeholders and the government. Through a network of 136 centers across the country, this program provides integrated services by linking interventions in education, which is via learning support services, child protection, early childhood development, and youth development. Uh, for me, particularly, it was very humbling to see children accessing so, uh, psychosocial support, taking music and art lessons, um, and also accessing support to strengthen their skills in maths and financial literacy. What was interesting about this program is also that this program covers all age groups. So from early childhood development age to young people, and there are a range of programs and support that it provides to children as uh, across their life course, across their childhood. And um, another interesting part was that this program, when it is combined with the Hajati program, which is a program that provides regular uh, monthly cash transfers to children who are out of school, it, it serves as a cash plus uh, component, which uh, allows households to have the financial means to send their children to school, but at the same time, provide that 
all-round support to children um, for education, but also otherwise. So I, I would say this was um, to me like a like an eye opener in terms of how integrated programming is done, uh, which addresses both the financial barriers as well as the um, information and social barriers, which can equip children uh, for a better future. Just to stay with you for a moment, we talked a little bit in that example about education, and of course, education is really key in ensuring mm-hmm. children aren't left behind. I'd just be interested if there are other examples of where you've seen uh, good examples where you've seen the inclusion of displaced children in public services, for example, giving them access to schools in in host countries or even health systems and some of those basic services. Yeah, sure. Christy, when she was talking earlier, she mentioned a couple of countries who host large number of displaced populations, and Turkey is one of them. It hosts the largest number of refugees globally, and many of them have fled the conflict in Syria and are living in urban, out-of-camp settings. And children comprise a sizable proportion of the displaced in Turkey. So to ensure that children do not lose out on education, in 2017, UNICEF partnered with the Ministry of Family, Labor and Social Services, the Ministry of Education, and the Turkish Red Crescent to implement a conditional cash transfer in education for refugee children. Now, this program actually mirrors a national program, uh, which is called the Conditional Cash Transfer for Education Program for Turkish children. It is a means-tested program. It also includes conditionality, which in normal circumstances, um, UNICEF um, wouldn't follow. Uh, especially the conditionality aspect. But um, given that this is a program that was already in uh, being implemented by the government for uh, vulnerable children in Turkey, uh, we decided to mirror this program for refugee children and um, and work with the government on this. So this includes refugee children enrolled in Turkish public schools, temporary education centers, and accelerated learning programs. So it's it's a whole range of um, education support mechanism that children can access. What I do find really interesting in this space is these examples where the humanitarian system is paralleling or mirroring local services or local schemes. Um, and Christy, uh, in a recent paper that you and a colleague prepared, which we can link to in the show notes, you've you've described a number of cases like this where international financing um, or other sources of funding have been used to effectively plug displaced people into existing national social protection schemes, or at least you know where international organisations are, are filling that financing gap. Well, could you give us some more examples of of how that works and how you see that playing out? So, yeah, before diving into any kind of specific financing examples, I think it's uh, helpful to to bear in mind the the international framework that countries have signed up to uh, in in relation to displacement challenges. Um, And specifically, I mean, this dates back to to the 1951 Refugees Convention, but most recently, the the Global Compact on Refugees actually said specifically that it it is providing a basis for predictable and equitable burden and responsibility sharing for displacement challenges. And this is kind of 
also echoed in the guiding principles on, on internal displacement as well in relation to, to IDPs and uh, providing support to IDPs. So we have these international frameworks that have specific commitments showing that because the burden of displacement, and it's not only a burden, but because the weight of displacement is so heavily borne by uh, specific low and middle income countries, that other high income countries, especially that are not actually hosting refugees or IDPs, uh, have a responsibility to provide either financing or resettlement places to uh, to help to uh, support those displaced populations. So that's the, the kind of basis of uh, developing these new forms of, of international financing to support uh, host governments to expand their services and expand their programming for displaced families, but at the same time also expanding provision for host communities who also are, are you know, affected by the arrival of, of many new people in their area. The most, I think, well-known example of this that we've seen on a really massive scale in the last few years uh, is the World Bank's IDA, uh, so the IDA 18 and IDA 19 windows for host communities and refugees. And I think it's been around $6 billion uh, of resources that they provided to those host countries since 2017 to create development opportunities for both refugees and host communities and also to promote socioeconomic inclusion of, of refugees in a variety of ways that strengthens and this is critical the investments are specifically aiming to strengthen state capacity uh, at the same time to manage and absorb the, these displaced populations um so social protection is one of the sectors within that window and it means that we've seen in various countries especially the sub-saharan african countries and the main ones that have taken part they have begun to include refugees for the first time in their kind of nascent social assistance programs that they've been developing that the poverty targeted social safety nets that they've been been building in their countries so countries like burkina faso cameroon chad DRC, Djibouti, there's, the list kind of goes on. They've been gradually registering more displaced households at the same time as the host community households and also starting to extend different types of programs. So sometimes public works, sometimes cash transfers. Uh, it depends a bit on the country context. But that, that's one of the, when we kind of looked at actual data on refugee and also IDP access to social protection, Nupur was mentioning um, how in Turkey, the program that was run there that was aimed at refugees that was kind of mirroring the social protection system, but also had special considerations because of the fact that uh, refugees have specific needs. So they have heightened needs, but they also have additional needs that the host community may not have. And so it is important that the kind of design and delivery of social protection is adjusted to make it um, work and make it effective for displaced families. And uh, this if the model is, is always just kind of building, uh, providing international financing to expand a state program for displaced and host communities alike, then it may not have these kind of additional design um, and delivery considerations that, that need to be put in place. Nupur, I wanted to bring you into this question of um, how displacement affects host countries and host communities. Um, as well as the people who have been displaced or the people who they are hosting. I'd be interested to hear from you about some of the programs uh, you've worked on for displaced people, especially children, that have actually gone on to build and strengthen 
local national social protection systems in some of the ways that Christy has also just been describing. Often where displaced populations move to um, tend to be locations or countries that do not have adequate quality and coverage of basic services in the first place, uh, which means that these services are already quite stretched. So an influx of displaced and migrant populations affects the carrying capacity of these services and you know leads to stretching them further. This impacts host populations and host children, especially those who are poor, vulnerable, and have limited voice in terms of changing the way the whole system works. Therefore, I think it's important uh, that programs aimed at supporting children also support children that are displaced and migrants also support vulnerable and poor children in the host communities so that uh, we're giving a fair chance in life to all children, regardless of their status, whether they're host community children or displaced children. Now, in terms of examples, then moving uh, towards Lebanon, there is this program called the Hadi Child Grant Program, and Hadi in Arabic means next to me. It's a national social assistance program for children launched by UNICEF in 2021 in collaboration with the Ministry of Social Affairs and Civil Society Partners. It provides child grant and complementary services to both vulnerable children as well as vulnerable children in uh, Lebanese households, but also displaced children who are of Syrian and Palestinian origin. And as cash transfers are not enough on their own, Hadi program provides additional complementary services like behavioral change communication, safe spaces for girls and women survivors or those at risk of gender-based violence, child marriage, and if needed, additional household visits for follow-up to identified households. The impact assessment um, of this program has highlighted many, many, many positive changes in the lives of um, children who are receiving it. But what I do want to uh, bring out here is that the experience and evidence that came out of um, this program that was um, designed to address a humanitarian need has helped in working towards what Christy was earlier alluding to, the national program that has recently been launched um, which is called the National Disability Allowance. And this is something which UNICEF is working with the Ministry of Social Affairs, the European Union and ILO to implement. And it is um, Lebanon's first ever social grant that provides direct cash uh, or, or, or if you can call it income support to persons living with disability. And it does not discriminate between nationals and non-nationals. It does reach non-nationals, but at at this point in time, the non-nationals are supported by UNICEF, not by other ministries. European Union is the, the main donor for, for this program. So this is a good example of how a humanitarian program can lead to creation of a national social protection program and a system. Christy, it's hard enough to gain sufficient political traction, public support, the necessary financing to cover vulnerable citizens in any given country. As you're engaging with governments, what is the pitch here? Why ideally would host countries invest in and extend social protections and services to refugees and displaced people over time? 
Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, first, we do have to acknowledge that this isn't really like a, a voluntary uh, commitment exactly. This is um, an international obligation under a number of, of international laws, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is the most widely ratified human rights treaty in history. But of course, it goes beyond that. And there are, are benefits to be gained in terms of just effectiveness. Um, the We know that social protection can be an extremely effective measure uh, for, for protecting children. And so there is uh, I think uh, we see often also kind of officials within uh, host governments really recognize the plight that displaced children face. And they do want to know how they can kind of get the biggest bang for their buck, I guess, in supporting them. But there's also a big case um, beyond that. And I think this is where uh, um, a lot of the interest has been recently, because we now know that there are wider economic, social and institutional benefits that the host society and the host economy and, and the host government itself can really gain from uh, extending uh, social protection to displaced children and families in partnership, especially when they're working in partnership with the international community. Uh, so on the, the economic side, uh, yes, of course, it does cost money to, to deliver social protection, but at the same time, the, the kind of multiplier effects that social protection can generate for local economies can be substantial, especially if you're you know, working with an international donor in order to develop a new program. That means often an additional cash in the case of a cash transfer program that's being injected into the local economy. Um, and that increases demand for services. It enables uh, local suppliers to kind of diverse and ex diversify and expand their produce. And then there's also the, the economic impacts of, of social protection on recipient families in terms of how it enhances their incomes and their economic productivity as well, and how it builds their human capital, we call it. We know that there is a link between um, bringing more people into a social insurance system and kind of diversifying the risk of that social security system across a larger population. That can be beneficial. We've seen that actually in the Venezuelan case in, in Colombia actually was uh, one of the countries that did a real cost benefit analysis of their response to the Venezuelan influx. And they calculated that their GDP would massively benefit from extending a lot of rights to Venezuelans. And among them was the right to work and the right to participate in social security and also to other forms of social protection as well. Some governments are really cottoning on to that economic benefit. Others, I think, have been focusing uh, more on the social uh, impacts and for example, the how social protection influences social cohesion. This is a complicated relationship. It's, you know, there are mixed impacts. I don't want to gloss over the kind of range of ways in which social protection for displaced communities can influence social cohesion. But when we think about it fundamentally, having a community where you have a lot of people who are newly arrived without housing, without assets, living in in extreme poverty that is not is often not not a good uh, outcome in terms of community relations either uh, we see that when that uh, assistance is provided to displaced families they can actually integrate better it's a mixed evidence base but these are some of the points that were actually raised in the study when we looked in Cameroon and um, we spoke to the host communities there about uh, the provision of social protection for um, IDPs and also for uh, for refugees there, they actually emphasized a lot that they could see um, 
direct benefits for them for as the host community when the displaced families were kind of better taken care of and also more able to to spend money um on their own the the final category and i promise this is the last one but the final big area where we see uh, benefits for the the host government uh, is in the strengthening of institutions so social protection as we we've said a number of times is often quite limited in these settings and having the opportunity to kind of access international support with technical support also financial support as well to develop your own social protection system that in a way that benefits the the host population as well that's a real uh, real opportunity to take there we've mostly been talking in this interview about people who have been displaced due to conflict but nupur i'm interested in how the thinking is emerging around whether we there's a likelihood that we'll see greater displacement of children and their families for example due to disasters and and climate related effects what are the lessons here as we consider that that potential future as christy mentioned earlier the trends in displacement um, indicate that um, between 2008 and 2022 the global number of child refugees more than doubled the number of idps has also increased so we are actually seeing a growing trend in displacement and migration and there are multiple reasons for it climate change being one of them the, the link between climate change and displacement is complex but there is widespread uh, consensus that climate change is affecting the frequency intensity um and geographic location of extreme weather events and large scale disasters which in the past occurred only occasionally are now more frequent and with every additional 1 degree celsius of warming the global risk of displacement from flooding are projected to rise by approximately 50% but coming back to the key lessons to consider for the future on social protection for children in the move whether they are impacted by conflict or climate change or economic reasons for me there are five key lessons or takeaways if i can um say based on the experience of unicef one is to recognize the specific vulnerabilities of children and the, the multi sector nature in policy and programs and social protection plays a key role here um as a measure to address child poverty while at the same time being an enabler to achieve specific sector outcomes um the second is that many children spend a significant part of their childhood in displacement about 5 to 10 years sometimes entire childhood this requires the blending of humanitarian and long term development approaches and such an approach needs to be embedded in the response of for dis- on response to displacement from the beginning and not brought in as an afterthought later on then the coverage of social protection we all know in general is very very low and specifically for children it's very low only 26.4% uh, of children globally benefit from any form of social protection so efforts to increase the coverage and comprehensiveness of social protection concerted efforts need to include displaced and migrant population into um, some of these efforts at building social protection floors and expanding the coverage of social protection that's point number 3 and then given that displaced children live in low income and middle income countries the role of external financing 
mechanisms becomes important to incentivize governments as well as humanitarian stakeholders for humanitarian donors this would mean among other actions recognizing social protection as a sector which it is not at the moment for providing humanitarian assistance this would mean resource allocation for increasing coverage of child sensitive social protection and leveraging it to encourage governments to extend social protection to displaced children and lastly i would say that an important consideration to keep in mind is that programs will only be truly inclusive and impactful if they are informed by consultation with children from displaced and host communities alike working with youth led networks women's groups from the design throughout the implementation of program is extremely extremely important we'll wrap it up there thank you so much nupur kukreti and christy low for your time on the social protection podcast today thank you thank you On today's episode in lieu of quick wins, we will instead have a quick update from a colleague who's working on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Rana Nassar is the regional representative in the CALP network in the Middle East and North Africa region. The CALP network is a dynamic global network of over 90 organisations working on humanitarian cash and voucher assistance and financial assistance. Rana, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thank you very much for having me, Jo. So Rana before we talk about this most recent phase of conflict and crisis in Gaza I wanted to ask you a little bit about what kinds of cash and voucher programs were already operating in that area could I start by asking you a bit about the Palestinian National Cash Transfer Program which I understand was the main local social protection program operating Yes of course so the this program the Palestinian National Cash Transfer Program is a program managed by the Palestinian Ministry of Social Development. Um it was set up in 2010 or or 2011 with support from the World Bank and the EU who continue to to provide some funding towards it where 50% of that is is meant to come from the Palestinian Authority. So according to the Ministry of Social Development this program aims to enhance people's ability to meet basic needs. It uses a proxy means testing targeting approach um so it targets families living below the extreme poverty line or what they call the deep um poverty line as calculated by the Palestinian Bureau of National Statistics so the program reaches around 119,000 families although its target is much higher but but with regards to limited funds that's the the amount that is it is able to reach around 62% of those families are in Gaza so the program operates both in the west bank and and in the gaza strip the the reason for that obviously is is around 1.4 million um of the people living in gaza out of around 2.2 million are actually refugees they do have a lot of uh, obviously needs and difficulties and then of course the blockade that gaza was suffering from and for the past 17 years which resulted in in high levels of vulnerability so the program makes payments on a quarterly basis it's meant to cover 50% of of the poverty gap of of these families however you know as i mentioned there there are funding limitations um where the ministry of social development is often unable to make payments the, the majority of people are sometimes only receive three out of the four rounds uh, that that they're meant to receive every year and it also has a huge waiting list so that's that's the program in in a nutshell And how have international organizations that have been working on a long-term basis on the humanitarian situation in Gaza 
How have they been working with cash and vouchers? Yes, so there are both international and local organizations actually um, that have been working on cash and voucher assistance programs. This has maybe a slightly longer history in Gaza where I think coordination structures were a bit more established, but recently it is increasing in in the West Bank. One of the main programs um, is WFP's voucher program. So that obviously focuses on fulfilling food needs. A number of, of organizations also deliver both regular and emergency cash assistance. So the regular cash assistance are monthly payments of between three to six months to vulnerable families. And then there are rounds of emergency cash assistance when there's violence, as we are seeing now in Gaza, but also when there's a displacement in the West Bank. There's also some sector-specific cash that's being distributed mainly for, for protection. So cash for protection has increased in, in recent years. Of course, there's also UNRWA, the UN Relief and Works Agency that, that are responsible for Palestine refugees. So they, they provide quarterly cash assistance to families and, and refugee families in, in the West Bank. Their support in Gaza focuses on, on in-kind assistance for, for a number of reasons, but they also have some, some cash for work opportunities. Interestingly, their largest safety net program is Ga- in Gaza is, is actually supported by the Qatari government. Um, so they provide uh, $100 monthly grants to around 100,000 families. Um, and they actually just before, I think this, this started in 2018, um, but just before this round of aggression, they had announced additional funding to, to continue to do that. Unfortunately, I think there's little um, coordination between the cash working group and, and the Qatari government on this, but there, there have been efforts to, to reach out. To sum up, there are a number of large programs, but also small, smaller NGO programs that, that deliver cash and voucher assistance. Of course, we're all watching the humanitarian crisis unfold in Gaza. It will likely evolve again in the time between uh, you and I speaking now and this episode going to air. So if we can turn to the humanitarian response or this phase of acute humanitarian response, what does it look like? How do cash and vouchers feature alongside other forms of humanitarian assistance? As you can imagine, the, the situation is, is overall very difficult for humanitarian organisations to provide any type of meaningful assistance with the continuous bombardment. The latest reports from, from UNOCHA show that there are around 1 million internally displaced people in Gaza now. Um, just over 500,000 of, of them are sheltering in UNOWA-designated emergency shelters. But of course, these are also becoming quickly overcrowded. Um, there are risks of diseases spreading, and in fact, we're, we're already seeing some of that um, in, in some of the shelters. Without a ceasefire, without a stop in, in aggression, the situation is worsening. There's still no agreement for any humanitarian aid to, to be let in through the Rafah border crossing with, with Egypt. So unfortunately, this, this insecurity, there are shortages in fuel, electricity, and, and water is, is proving very challenging for all humanitarian operations. I think it's also important to, to recognize that Humanitarian staff themselves are being displaced with their families. So far, assistance has focused on food distributions in in the shelters. Mainly cash assistance is being provided to internally displaced people who are outside of the shelters. And then there's some emergency fuel being provided to to wash facilities. So just focusing on cash a little bit, humanitarian actors have managed to provide some emergency cash assistance to around 6,500 families since the beginning of the crisis from various partners of the cash working group. So this is the unrestricted cash assistance. WFP are still ongoing with their voucher program as well. I unfortunately don't have information on on the number of of families it is reaching. 
So the actors and the cash working group are continuing to, to monitor the market situation in, in the different areas, as well as the cash out rates, which are currently varying. But the information that we have is that, as the cash working group coordinator himself put it, when there's no food in the fridge, people are going to, to take a risk, um, either go to the market or go to take out their cash and, and go and buy some food. So Flash Appeal has been launched and there is a sp- specific section on multipurpose cash assistance within that. There is also a, a humanitarian fund allocation of $9 million, of which $2 million, I believe, is, is dedicated to cash. So while the situation overall is, is very difficult in, in delivering other types of assistance, there is a push on trying on to deliver emergency cash assistance at least. So given the difficulty in getting supplies through to internally displaced people, does cash provide an avenue, therefore, to provide assistance that you might not otherwise be able to provide? Are people able still to get cash out, given that I guess there's shortages in all sorts of ways? Yes. So there is, as I said, there is continuous monitoring both of the markets and and the availability of goods in the markets. But in terms of, of actually getting the cash assistance. So the cash worker group and its partners work with one specific financial service provider. Um, and that financial service provider is still able to operate. So far, we haven't heard of any liquidity issues. So there's still cash in ATMs. People are, are able to, to cash out. But the yeah, obviously, the practicalities of the market and, and this continues for, for much longer. Liquidity issues will obviously um, have an effect. Do any of these programs, uh, are payments made sometimes electronically? I mean, how, how important is the physical cash in this situation? Or is it the case that people could be receiving money into bank accounts and, you you know, doing electronic transfers to merchants and that kind of thing? How does it work? So when it comes to voucher programs, like the one that WFP is, is running, people are provided with usually electronic vouchers that they are able to go to specific vendors and use those vouchers to to buy specific items and then the reconciliation happens yes between the organization and those um and those vendors when it comes to cash assistance yes i believe the current service provider that that is being used is an agent where people can go and and they would be verified through their id and this would be shared in advance with this agent and their different branches where people would go and, and then receive the cash to be able to then go to the market and spend it on, on what they need. I mean, obviously, a, a number of challenges with, with different ways or different cash modalities, but it depends on, on what is available, what, what is possible at the moment. And also just, just to note that I think around 54% of, of the mobile network in Gaza is now has been destroyed. So there are also in terms of using electronic systems, that makes it more, more difficult. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? I think we we look to cash to be allowing for a lot of choice and it can circumvent some technical challenges, but there comes a point in crisis where systems are non-functioning or, or breaking down where you see, I guess, these modalities really stretch to their limits. So it'd be really important to see how these mechanisms are able to perform during this really critical time. So you've mentioned people going to markets to buy food. What else does cash enable in a crisis of this nature? What else do we know about how people are using the cash that they're taking out? With with unrestricted cash assistance, it's it's always difficult to track what people are, are using it for, especially at, at this stage of, of the crisis and, and when it's emergency cash. But the assumption is that people will, will be using it for, for mainly food, water and fuel, perhaps also to 
pay for transport um, if they need to move locations or, or they need to relocate. And so I mean, the basic premise is that cash gives people the choice and, and dignity to fulfill their needs as, as they see. The assumption is that they are using it for, for the absolute minimum to survive and, and just to try and, and get through this, um, this period. In 2021, as a humanitarian response plan was being developed, there was a real increase in the use of cash and voucher assistance. Can you explain uh, a little bit about the plan, that increase, and whether you see that making a difference to the way assistance is being provided in the current conflict? Yes, of course. So the, the, the humanitarian response plan is, is an annual plan that's usually developed in crisis situations. In 2021, there was a, a quick study done by the CALP network, which showed that there was a fourfold increase in, in the use of cash and voucher assistance, or at least the plan to use cash and voucher assistance in, in the humanitarian response plan for the OPTs, which includes both the West Bank and Gaza. I think there, there are a number of reasons for this, mainly the establishment of the cash working group. I think prior to 2020, there wasn't an official coordination structure for humanitarian cash assistance in the West Bank or, or I think at, at a national level. So I think that really enabled increased coordination between partners and then an avenue to coordinate at an intersector level where the humanitarian response plan is usually developed. Also, a few other reasons or maybe, you know, kind of a related to, to the increase in, in use in couch, cash and voucher assistance is focusing on the protection crisis in Gaza and in the West Bank. So there are two protection consortiums, one in the West Bank and the other in Gaza, who were increasingly using cash and voucher assistance as, as part of their response. All this since 2021 up until now has led to having a dedicated chapter in the humanitarian response plan for 2023 for multipurpose cash assistance. So this enables, in a way, a kind of concerted effort to plan and, and coordinate around that, but also fundraise for this important delivery mechanism. As we said before, this is a really difficult humanitarian situation. Access has been restricted and limited. And of course, the movement of people, as you've said, is, is very great. In coming weeks from where you're sitting, what are some of the critical steps that you'll be focusing on in this emergency to deliver effective assistance to those in need? Yes, thank you, Joe. And yeah, it is it is a difficult question indeed. The CAP network is is non operational, so I will answer this from kind of a non operational per perspective, but also from from what I'm seeing and kind of the, the discussions happening on the ground. So as as we can see, many NGOs are are calling for a ceasefire. This will be really key in in enabling um, agencies um, to deliver the, this much needed humanitarian assistance, be that in kind in kind or or the use of cash, um, the cash assistance. The other thing, of course, is is allowing essential humanitarian aid to enter through Egypt. There are, you know, tens of trucks, as we hear, waiting at the border for, for permission. Of course, reinstating electricity and water to allow for the functioning of hospitals and, and shelters before supplies run out will be really important as, as things are, are becoming worse. On cash in specific, uh, I've referred to this already, but you know, obviously this depends both on liquidity, which is not a problem yet from, from what we can see, but of course the availability of, of goods in, in the market. So with the borders currently closed, this will put pressure on the current operations and efforts to, to deliver emergency cash. We know that there's been some ability for farmers, for example, to harvest their crops and sell in the market, but it is you know, obviously becoming more, more and more difficult to travel to do that. So in, in summary, the kind of 
most important thing is is for the for a ceasefire to happen for for essential humanitarian items to to be let in and and that will enable the different parts of the humanitarian system to deliver aid more more effectively is there anything else you would like to add before we before we wrap up i think i just want to say that the importance of the coordination structure already being there, being established, having these things kind of already agreed in terms of transfer values, how you monitor the market, how you coordinate is has been really important. And, and it, it enabled the cash working group and its partners to quickly mobilize um, to provide this assistance. So this just kind of overall highlights the importance of, of preparedness to crises, which unfortunately in, in this region is, is no stranger to but also linking that to how we think about linking with existing systems. And there was work ongoing prior to the crisis on this, and, and we hope that it will be able to, to pick up after as well. Rana Nassar, thank you so much again for taking the time at this very busy time to speak to us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you very much, Joe. It was my pleasure. One last thing before we go. We've recently launched the Social Protection Digest, a quarterly compilation that brings together practitioner guides, evidence-based studies, and policy and conceptual discussions on a wide range of topics carefully handpicked from our platform, that's socialprotection.org. The Digest serves as an essential resource for you to keep up with what's new in social protection. And after you've done reading, let us know what you think by taking our three-minute survey. The link is in the episode description. And thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we are so grateful when you leave a review. Back next month. See you then.